Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Um, first of all, I'd like to again say thank you to Anne and the rest of the incredible music team that you all have assembled here. Uh, I can't make music, but I can appreciate music, and, and you guys have got terrific music here. It makes me a little nervous to have people behind me, though, when I'm preaching. Um, normally, I like to have a door back there. Um, so if you see them start to nod off, I can see if you start to nod off, but I can't see if they start to nod off. And so uh, just kind of let me know, and I'll try to pick it up a little bit. I do want to say uh, on this week when we have experienced so much tragedy that uh, it is appropriate that we have a baptism and a communion at the same service. Both are symbols of death and resurrection. Both bring us into the resurrected life of Christ. Uh, the idea of burial, resurrection, going down into the grave, coming back up, cleansed, being invited to the table of the Lord. And I invite you to, to think of this table as extending out into eternity and that we are sharing this table with those who have gone before. And especially, I think, of David's dad, Buzz. Uh, his real name was Bernard, but nobody who valued their life would have called him that. Uh, Buzz was a very, very dear man to me. He literally built, literally, with his hands, because uh, he was a contractor, uh, two of the churches that I served. Um, his lovely wife, Susan, David's mom, uh, was my administrative assistant for well over 12 years. Buzz was one of the most amazing guys I've ever known. And if you love David, as I'm sure you do, which is why you're here, uh, you see a lot of who Buzz was in David. And um, so even if you didn't know Buzz, you loved him because you love David. And so um, it is appropriate this day that we remember that death is not the end and that it is a doorway because of the, the work of Christ into a greater and greater presence of God and a greater and greater life. And Buzz was a guy who loved life and lived it to the full. And I'm sure he is, I don't want to be exercise a cliche here, but I'm sure he's having a blast right now. As we mourn, he is rejoicing in the presence of our Lord. You are the salt of the earth, as um, the scripture said earlier, and you are the light of the world. What does it mean to be salt and light in Washington, D.C. in 2018? What does it mean to be the church. Uh, we have two English words that come from two Greek words that mean church. One that we don't use very often except uh, in fancy circles, uh, ecclesia, ecclesiastical. Ecclesia is the Greek word if you're Spanish or French or you're more familiar with that. And it, it, it's two Greek words jammed together to be called out. Ek, like exit, and then kaleo, to call. Uh, it is the, the people who have been called out but in English, we, we choose the word kirche, church. Um, in German, you, you hear that, and in Scottish. Uh, and it means those who belong to the, to the kurios, to the Lord. And what does it mean to belong to the Lord in Washington, D.C. in 2018? Um, what does it mean to be salt and light? Salt and light were very rare and valuable commodities in Jesus' day. Uh, the idea of calling people salt and light would have gotten their attention. Salt was hard to come by. 
Uh, it was mined, uh, uh, but it was full of impurities because it was caught up with the dirt and stuff, and so it was the, the, the actual salt would leach out of it, and, and you would be sprinkling stuff on your food and find out it was just dirt. It wasn't the salt was gone from it, and so you'd just toss it out. Light, I found this in the, in the back room there, they, uh, the room where they vest. It's just a, it's a little oil lamp. You see these all over the Middle East. Um, you see them on restaurant tables sometimes. You just put a little oil in there and light the wick. But imagine this is the only light you have in your house. Uh, we, we take salt and light for granted. We throw a switch and light comes on. We ask somebody to pass the salt and they give us a salt shaker uh, unless our doctor's around and then the doctor says, don't do that. And you say, well, I'm the salt of the world. I, I need to be refilled here. Um, and, but imagine how rare and how valuable that was. You, my brothers and sisters, are rare and valuable because you understand your role as salt and light. I'm going to come back to that through the back door, but I want to talk primarily about the passage from the book of Corinthians. Paul is writing to his friends in Corinth, uh, reflecting on his visit with them, which you can read about in the book of Acts. His visit with them in Corinth came about after his visit to Athens. Paul had been taken to Athens, and it was his chance to sort of weigh his intellectual ability against the best philosophers of the age. And you can read Paul's speech on the Areopagus in the book of Acts, and scholars have sort of analyzed that thing to death, and they basically have decided it was a, it was a pretty good speech. Paul used all of his philosophical background and all of his theological training and all of his scholarly intellect to try to connect in an intellectual way with the scholars and the intellects on the Areopagus. And um, in a sense, he did a good job. His speech was, was a good one. Uh, I was a philosophy major. I, was, uh, I like the world of ideas, and Paul would have understood that. The problem was it didn't work. The problem was that they, they sort of listened to that, and they said, well, that's an interesting idea. We'll talk about that some more. But lives were not changed. People were not brought into a vital relationship with Christ. And so Paul, scholars have speculated, came away from that experience sort of disappointed and, and sort of wondering, what did I do wrong? I, you know, I'm sure he went over and over and over again. Why didn't I convince them intellectually that Jesus was the answer to life's questions? Why were, why were so few people converted? And so Paul, when he gets to Corinth, He's off his game. He, he's unsure of himself. And so he writes that when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That word lofty there literally in Greek means over the top. I, I, I didn't come to you trying to impress you with my intellect. Uh, I tried that in Athens. It didn't work. I, I didn't come trying to blow you away. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I tend to think of Paul as a guy who had his act together. He was very self-confident, always knew what he wanted to say, how he wanted to say it, where he wanted to go. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And yet here Paul is admitting that he was scared. He was so scared that he trembled. Have I mean, you been there? You know, where your knees are actually shaking. 
This was not the Paul who had been so self-confident on the Areopagus. Paul had to rely on God in a way that he hadn't had to do before. And um, I know what that's like to be scared and to be off your game and to not be able to sort of trust your instincts. Um, I share this story with my wife's permission, and I, and I, and I want you to kind of keep this in mind. Uh, it may surprise you to know, my, we've been married 36 years now, um, and we had our first fight this last week. Um, actually, that's a lie. It wasn't our first fight. But um, we, were, uh, we were driving back from North Carolina, so we were stuck in the car together, the two of us. Ever been there? You know, and you start off the trip and you're having a disagreement. And you think, oh gosh, is there a faster way to get from North Carolina to Northern Virginia? Is there some shortcut that I don't have to be in the car for the next four and a half hours? Now, my wife is a lovely, lovely, forgiving, gracious, wise person. Um, but I was scared to death. I was scared to death partly because I knew I was wrong. Um, but my, my instinct, guys, maybe there's one or two of you here that can identify with this. My instinct was to, to try to figure out, okay, how can I get out of being wrong? How can I go for the zinger? How can I win? How can I be strong in this moment? How, how can I you know, some kind of intellectual jujitsu or wrestling move where I can come out of this on top. And my wife wonderfully and patiently put up with me until I finally realized that the only way out of this thing was vulnerability, weakness, and honesty. Where I, I finally realized that I didn't, I could not control the result, but I needed to speak the truth in vulnerability, honesty, love, in fear, and literally fear and trembling. I could barely drive the car. I probably should have pulled over in hindsight. Rather than go for rhetoric and, and, and use, well, what about this and what about that, I just sort of opened up my heart and I said, I was, I, I really messed up. I'm strong. I was wrong. And help me understand why. And the conversation changed at that point. Uh, God showed up. Before that, God was, I'm sure, just sort of waiting for me to stop trying to be strong so that he could be, be present as he promises where two or three are present. And my wife and I are both followers of his, obviously. And so it was with much fear and trembling that I said, my only resort is to just be open and honest and vulnerable, to, in a sense, put myself on a cross, to take up my cross, to follow Jesus. And then, as I said, the whole conversation kind of shifted in my wife's wisdom and her love and her, her skill as a therapist um, sort of came to the fore. That was Paul's experience in Corinth. Paul's experience in Corinth was, I was with you with fear and much trembling, much trembling. 
not just a little bit of trembling. That was actually a favorite phrase of Paul's. He used it in his letter to the Philippians. Um, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, those of you who studied philosophy as an undergraduate or perhaps just read uh, Christian literature know that, that that title, Fear and Trembling, was a book by Soren Kierkegaard uh, where he tries to understand what it means to come into faith. And Kierkegaard said, infinite resignation is the last stage before faith. Infinite resignation is the last stage before faith. In other words, when you reach the end of your ability, when, when you have run out of clever things to say, when you have reached the, the final point of all your syllogisms and all your arguments and all the clever little tricks that you learned, that's when faith comes in. And that was Paul's experience. And I think Paul in the time between Athens and Corinth, reflected on his own conversion. If you remember the story of Paul's conversion, Paul was not converted by intellectual argument. Paul was not converted by, by sitting down and, and saying, okay, let's talk about the deontological argument versus the teleological argument versus the ontological argument, and let's, let's look at all of the different ways of approaching God and, and, and try to figure it out and look it on paper and put the pro... Paul was converted when he was knocked on his rear end, literally, by the God of the universe who said, Paul, stop it. Just stop it. It's killing you and it's ruining your life. And in order to get the point across, I'm going to blind you for a while. This proud, self-sufficient man, I'm going to make you as dependent as a child. And in the context of his dependency and his weakness and his vulnerability, where he couldn't just sort of intellectually find his way out of this thing, somebody came to him and said, Paul, God is trying to get your attention here. And if you're willing to be weak and vulnerable and open yourself up, God will speak to you and he will change your life. And as Paul reflected on his own experience of conversion, he realized it was encountering the living God in a personal way and not sort of putting it all together intellectually. And he said, well, maybe that's the trick. Maybe the trick is to focus on Jesus and not clever intellectual arguments not fancy syllogisms, not thick books with apologetics in them, but to just open up and say, let me tell you about Jesus. The church is not primarily a community of people who agree with certain philosophical or even theological principles, but it's people, it's a body of people who have had a life-changing encounter with the living Christ. I used to work for an organization called Young Life, and it was founded by a guy named Jim Rayburn. Jim was an incredibly gifted evangelist, and he was very, very good at getting things started. Um, he wasn't that good at keeping them going. Maybe you've known people like that. Maybe you've known people who, they can, they can get things going, and then once they're going, they, they, they just sort of are out of their depth. And what happened with Jim was that the organization became so successful that Jim's style was actually holding it back. And so the board of directors had to literally fire the founder. And he was replaced by a guy named Bob Mitchell who had been one of Jim Rayburn's club kids, but who loved Jim to death and they loved each other. And Jim contracted a fatal illness and he called Bob to his side and he, 
he had written down on an, on an envelope, as I hear the story, some of these words, atonement, reconciliation, justification, propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, and the list went on. And he handed that envelope to Bob, and he said, Bob, never let him stop talking about Jesus. He'd written across the top of that envelope, the finished work of Christ. Never let him stop talking about Jesus. In other words, don't let this organization, this para-parish ministry, ever lose its focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't let it get caught up in other things. Don't let it become a social service agency. Don't let it become a philosophical debating society. Well, those are good things. But that's not what the church is about. That's not what being the people of God is about. I was struck as I read this passage over and over again in preparation for talking about it today. A little phrase that I just totally missed in the hundreds of times I'd read this passage before. Paul says, I, when I came to you, I came in fear and trembling, and I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, I always got that part, and him crucified. Now, if I had been Paul, I would have said, yeah, I'm going to talk about Jesus, but I'm going to talk about Jesus Christ and him resurrected. I'm going to talk about Jesus Christ and him glorified. I'm going to talk about Jesus the winner. I'm going to talk about Jesus who overcame death in the grave. I'm going to talk about the Jesus who got him. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, I came and I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him in his weakness, him in his sacrifice, him in his self-giving. Now that's a very different thing, isn't it, than saying, I want to talk about the resurrection, and I want to give you 19 proofs for the resurrection. Paul was saying, if you want to communicate the love of God, and you want to communicate God's deepest longing in his heart to connect with the deepest longings of our heart, then let's focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified, choosing ourselves to be vulnerable and to risk showing our weakness so that, in Paul's words, when we are weak, God can be strong. It's not quite as fashionable as it was 10 or 20 years ago to have WWJD bumper stickers and WWJD bracelets and WWJD mailboxes or whatever they have. I don't know. And that's usually translated, what would Jesus do? And it, it's sort of based on an old book called In His Steps. And the idea is, you know, in any sort of ethical situation, you try to figure out, okay, what would Jesus do? And I've never liked that. Um, because it turns Christianity into sort of an ethical exercise. You sort of have to think, okay, if Jesus were here, what would he do? Which is not a bad question, but the problem is it's rotten theology. Because the reality is that Jesus is there. And so the question is not what would Jesus do, it's what will Jesus do? Because he's there. He's present. And he is most present in our weakness. So the question we need to ask is not what, what am I supposed to do? What would Jesus do? Let me see if I can figure this out ethically. The question is, God, what are you doing here? How can I get out of the way so that you can work? What will Jesus do if I turn this over to him?
How is God already at work in this situation? That verse in Philippians, it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The very next line, Paul says, is, for God is the one who is at work within you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's already at work in you. God is there. He didn't catch him by surprise. He knows what's going on. What does it mean to be salt and light? What does it mean to be the church of Jesus Christ in Washington, D.C.? It means to be countercultural. It means to not focus on the wind. If you got the vote, step on their throats. No, it's not about how can I get a zinger in there? How can I end the argument coming out going, yeah, I won that. It's about being open and vulnerable and, and being choosing to take the risk of opening up and letting Jesus Christ shine through, of saying, all I have is Jesus Christ and him crucified. All I have is a Savior who died so that I might live. That's all I've got. And that's all you need. Because then God can work. So, first, ask, what will Jesus do? In whatever situation, whether in your car with your spouse or whether you're with, in a business situation, or what does God want to do in this situation? What is God doing? Choose to focus on the God who loved you enough that he sent his son to die for you. And then choose to risk. When you find yourself in fear and trembling, rejoice. Don't say, God has abandoned me. Say, ah, God is at work. This is now where God can show himself in and through me in this situation. Rejoice, embrace fear and trembling, because it is the doorway through which God can walk. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm not sure I'm real thankful for this truth. Um, it makes me uncomfortable to even think about it. And yet, even the word comfort, come forte, to come with strength, I regularly realize that when I'm willing to open up, recognize my own fear, feel my own trembling, that that's when you, through your Holy Spirit, breathes on me and says, I'm here. I got it. Watch me work. Because I love you. We pray this in the strong name of your Son, who was weak for our sake. Jesus Christ. Amen.